our road to walk then and now, is copyright protected. It may not be used or sampled without the owner's written permission. Welcome to Our Road to Walk, Then and Now, a podcast brought to you from Warren County, North Carolina. It's known as the birthplace of the environmental justice movement. I'm Deborah Ferruccio. And I'm Ken Ferruccio. In our introductory podcast, Ken, we tried to share with our listeners, you know, why they should listen to us, why they should listen to this Our Road to Walk. It's it's a personal road that you and I have walked, and it's also a very public road, but we don't want our podcast listeners to be confused by the order of our podcast. We want them to understand that our then and now method of sharing this long environmental justice journey has us time switching from then to now and from now to then. So we decided that before we shared the detailed chronological sequence of the events of this PCB history as it unfolded, it would be helpful in our first episode, The Making of the Movement, to share an overview of the first four years between 1978 and 1982. That's because little is known about how the movement was made. Little is remembered about how Warren County citizens concerned about PCBs conceived and built their case against the PCB landfill and crafted the framework for the environmental justice movement that would emerge. A movement doesn't spring out of nothing. In our second episode, Civil Disobedience, we decided that since the 40th anniversary of the 1982 protests is currently being celebrated, we would take our podcast listeners right to the 1982 movement. Much has been said and continues to be said about Warren County's now iconic 1982 PCB protests known for launching the environmental justice movement. The marches in the civil disobedience continue to be the focus of local, state, and federal EPA officials, of civil rights and environmental advocates, and of academics and the media. Let me take a moment to explain the thinking behind our episode names. The titles Our Road to Walk Then will be grounded in the past, and Our Road to Walk Now will focus on more current and persisting issues. In our third episode, Our Road to Walk Now, Pollution is Not Somewhere Over There, we introduced our daughter Kira, who shared her experiences growing up with activist parents and her own experiences with becoming an environmental activist herself. In this episode, we want to take you back to the very beginning of this history, to the midnight PCB dumpings, our own personal introduction to PCBs, and the making of a public health crisis. The PCB history for us, for Ken and me, it began the summer of 19. 19- uh, 78, uh, in early August when, uh, you and I, Ken, had, you know, we had planted a garden, a pretty big garden for, for us, built, I mean, uh, laid out with tractor rows and really lots of weeds. We were in the weeds in August. It was a lot of fun to plant it in, in, uh, May and June, but in August it was not as much fun. And so we decided before school started that we were going to try to take a quick trip to the ocean. And we didn't really have the time on a weekend to drive all the way to the Outer Banks to Ocracoke, our favorite place. So we decided to go to a place that my sister Victoria had heard about that was uh, called Bear Island, and it's near Camp Lejeune. And uh, so we decided to go to Bear Island because you could uh, take a little ferry ride over there, a short ferry ride, and there were no cars. You just carried your camping equipment, which we kept at a minimum. And so we got to Bear Island. We were very excited. We set up camp. 
And it didn't take long for us to realize that in the heat of August, uh, the sand fleas, the noceums, these carnivorous little teeny bugs uh, were going to eat us alive. They were eating us alive. They get in your hair. They get in your sleeping bags. And uh, it was one of the most miserable nights we've ever had camping. So we decided the next morning to hightail it back home with a tail between our legs for sure. It had not worked out. Bear Island was not the kind of place we wanted to be, not in August. And so we're driving in our 1967 Red International truck, the three of us, and of course, no air conditioning, no air conditioning in the car, none at the cabin. And uh, we're trying to stay awake because all of us had been awake literally the whole night. And I'm reading an article that I had in a Mother Earth news magazine that our friend Sylvia had given us about how to grow a small, intensive sort of raised bed gardening garden and, and to use newspapers for mulching. And, you know, that sort of kept us awake for a while, Victoria and me. Uh, but we were so drowsy that we decided when we stopped to get gas that we would take a quick nap in the back of the truck while Ken took the first turn driving. And so... Uh, we're lying there, Vicky and I roll out our sleeping bags and we've got our little visors over our head trying to keep the sun off of our faces. And I can see the telephone poles going across my eyes and I'm going into this very luxurious sleep. It feels so good. We're so tired. And then all of a sudden there's this bam, bam, bam on the truck window and Ken wakes us up and we jump up real quick and we look and we're like, what's going on? And Ken's sort of gesturing and pointing and we look over to where he's pointing, and he's pointing to the side of the roads, and there are these big, huge yellow signs that say, caution, PCB chemicals spill along highway shoulders. Well, we don't know what chemical it is, except for its PCBs. We don't know what PCBs are, but we know chemicals are bad. We'd been hearing about chemicals uh, with Love Canal, the place up in New York where they had buried all these chemicals, the Hooker Chemical Company had, and then built a housing development and a school on top of it, and People were sick. Children were born with, you know, deformities and all this stuff. So the public knew about chemicals and you didn't have to be, you know, a rocket scientist to know that if the state was putting up big yellow signs cautioning the public about PCBs along the roadside, it was not a good thing. So Ken finally finds a place where he thinks he can stop the car sort of on a hill where he can see both directions because he certainly wasn't going to pull off onto the highway shoulder. And he motions to us and Vicky and I jump in the truck and we roll up the windows and we close the little vent, which was this little triangular shaped window that gave you some air. Um, and uh, we call them the wings. And we started continuing to drive uh, back home. And of course, uh, with the windows up in this awful uh, August heat, the tension from seeing these signs that were coming, it seemed like every half a mile, we don't know how close they were, but, you know, every minute or two, there was another sign. The tension is mounting in, in, in the in the car, in the truck, and, and we are miserable. The heat is so terrible. And we've got a road map. Of course, that's how you got places back in the day. You didn't have a GPS. And, and um, we're on highway... Uh, uh, I think it is, uh, uh, 58. And we begin to hear this sound in our, our truck that sounds like it's up in the tire region. Uh, we knew 
it was something that had to do with a tire a tie rod something and it makes us even more nervous because now we have to drive 15 miles an hour because we don't want to break down and get stuck because we're driving through countryside there's nothing but a house here or there a farmhouse or whatever so we look at the map and we decide we're going to get off of this road and we cut across to highway 43 thinking at least if we break down it won't be along the pcb highways and you know what do we find after driving an extra 10 miles or so across to highway 43 that they too had been uh dumped uh, uh on the roadsides there so it was an awful drive home and um, for Ken and me, this was our first experience with the threat of toxic polychlorinated biphenyls. We found out what PCBs meant. And we found out that uh, that PCBs were indeed a very dangerous chemical. And for us, this awful drive home from Bear Island was a threat that would dominate the next 44 years of our lives and it would really shape um, who we would become and, and how we would live for the rest of our lives. Ken's just turned 80 and I'm about to turn 70. So we've been at this now 44 years. Uh, when we got home, we started making phone calls and we called uh, our friend Laura Benny, who was the person who brought us to Warren County. And she told us that uh, her friend, Tommy Harris, had talked to her about the fact that his mother, Frances Harris, had actually seen a black tanker driving very slowly along her road. She lived along Highway 43, and uh, that uh, it had veered when it, she approached it. And so um, she said later that uh, that if she'd known what the driver was up to, she said she would have chased that guy down and got his license number and and as I got to know Frances Harris over uh, the next year or so, I found out that she truly was a, a feisty, no-nonsense kind of woman. Um, we also then began to learn that residents in numerous counties uh, 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 had been calling their sheriffs and reporting that they had sighted this black tanker that was releasing some kind of really noxious, terrible-smelling liquid along the roadsides. And um, we began to uh, find that in the newspapers, they began to refer to this as the midnight PCB dumpings uh, because they were happening at night. And as people began to talk about this, it became clear that whoever was driving this tr this tanker truck um, was purposefully uh, driving slowly along the roadsides and spewing this spray of noxious you know, PCBs about a three foot wide spray up one side of the road and then sometimes down the other side the next night. It took them almost two weeks to do this. Um, and uh, they would go to the Virginia border and turn around and, and it was random. They would appear to be random. They would do it for like three miles here and 10 miles here. Uh, as we learned about this, we found out that most of the PCBs, the, the, the county that had the most was Warren County. Um, and as we began to read about it in the papers, uh, a Johnston County resident, was, her name was uh, Janie Pleasant, which was sort of an ironic name for this story, but she she said the air was terrible and that she awakened one night to this loud honking and she went outside and to her door and saw this station wagon and it was trying to flag down, the guy had jumped out of his car and was trying to try, dry, uh, flag down this driver of a big black tanker truck and 
the the driver of the truck just kept on going. He didn't slow down. And then um, people began to talk about the reaction they had to this foul, toxic-smelling PCBs. They said their throat was scratchy, their eyes were burning, their nose was dripping, they had headaches that lasted for days. And, and it continued. Even as people began to report it, the PCBs continued to be dumped along the roadsides. And it made no sense. If you were really trying to get rid of something that was dangerous, you certainly wouldn't keep going back to the same crime scene the next night across the road. You wouldn't do it in 14 counties. You would just find some nice, quiet little place to 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 dump these things. Um, you know, according to the Washington Post, because this story was not just a statewide story, it was a bigger story. They, they said that, you know, that the PCBs were being dumped by these uh, criminals to avoid the expense of disposing of PCBs according to new federal regulations, which were becoming effective or had just become effective under the Federal Toxic Substance Control Act. And yet it didn't make any sense that if you were trying to get rid of a chemical, uh, you know, a tanker load of, of something like this, that you would go up and down the roadsides and uh, and come back to the same place that you, you know, had done it before. So the, the public was being told one thing, but it didn't make sense to most people who were actually listening. Um, at the same time that this was happening, as I mentioned earlier, uh, Love Canal uh, had happened in uh, upstate New York, and people had begun to learn that we were in trouble, that we were now in a toxic age where we were creating all these toxic chemicals and we needed safe places or something to do with them. Um, uh, yet uh, the the state really didn't know how to handle this uh, uh, at first because while they put up the signs and warned the public, you know, caution, look out, these chemicals are all along these roadsides, um, the public health uh, officials um, decided that they better take it easy and not try to scare the people too much. And so, um, even though the, the tobacco farmers and the field hands were getting dizzy and nauseated from the, the chemical vapors and stuff, at, at first, um, the state said, yeah, don't worry about it. They're not that dangerous. And, and, you know, so people were being told, you know, not to worry too much about it. And yet the signs, of course, were making people very worried. And one farmer, his name was Mitchell uh, Langdon. He was from Johnston County. He and his workers had felt so sick from this and nothing happened uh, soon enough for Mitchell that he took one of his own uh, pieces of equipment and started digging up the PCB uh, tainted soil in front of his property and he put it in a pile away from his house and from his barns. And yet the State Department of Epidemiology was saying, look, PCBs are not that dangerous and they don't pose an immediate threat. Although the big yellow signs said otherwise. And so what happened was that while the state officials were slow to address the potential dangers to the residents, um, on the other hand, they had taken immediate action when they put the signs up, which was a contradiction that didn't really make sense to people. 
And so at one point, the Division of Health Services um, distributed leaflets literally to the roadside residents. And this was, turns out, were, the PCBs were dumped in 14 counties. And at first, it, you know, they said there were no immediate dangers to anyone's health and that this form of the PCBs found on the roadsides was not of the more toxic varieties and that the chemical wouldn't cause damage for two or three years because it was trapped in the soil. But then, soon after, the state agricultural officials, uh, officials issued leaflets directly to residents that said there was little likelihood that the crops or the gardens near the roads would be affected. Then they uh, passed out leaflets said warning farmers who live along the roadsides um, against grazing cattle or harvesting vegetables for direct human consumption within 100 yards of the spills. And that's because they were finding out that apparently these, uh, uh, some of the vegetation was becoming visibly dead. And so then they were warning people not to consume and to graze cattle near uh, the PCB spills. So it was uh, a difficult situation the state was in. On the one hand, they had warned the people it's dangerous. They put up the signs and then they find out that, you know, even though it's supposedly not going to hurt them for a while, nevertheless, they shouldn't consume stuff from their gardens or cattle shouldn't graze near them. And the public was really confused and the, and the state was in a bind because they were having to play down the dangers of the PCB spills, but they also had to address the fact that it was now a public health crisis. And so um, the governor, uh, in his weekly press conference, he said that uh, that the health bureaucrats, he admitted that they had taken a slow and a standoffish sort of approach but he said to alerting the residents. Uh, but he also said, but I think we've made an adequate response here. Well, that word adequate did not sit right with very many people because uh, when you're endangered, you don't want something that's adequate. You want more than adequate. And and so then in the News and Observer, there was a, a close source that wasn't named uh, to the governor, to Governor James B. Hunt Jr., who said that public health is passive in North Carolina and it's Cummins, and Mr. Cooman, Dr. Cooman was the North Carolina Director of Public Health. This uh, source said that it was the sins of omission that were stacking up. And he said that a health director, he or she said that a health director should be out there in the lead on these things. And so as, as Ken and I and others in, you know, North Carolina and even beyond were watching the situation closely and watching the state as it was trying to seemingly walk this tightrope between warning the, 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 the citizens of these 14 counties that this was a danger, these PCBs along the roadsides were a danger, that they weren't that much of a danger that they should be too worried about it. And so what happened was that while it was trying to avoid a potential public panic and yet promoting a public health crisis, uh, it was obviously too much for Dr. Kuhlman, and he resigned and accepted a, a teaching position at the University of Chapel Hill's School of Public Health. Folks, when Ken and I were introduced to the PCBs and my sister Victoria and I were riding in the back of that red truck that we learned later was called uh, riding uh, Southern convertible style, 
We had no idea that this would be the beginning of a long saga, not just for our lives, a long road that we would walk, but a long road that the state of North Carolina would be walking and that is walking even to this day. Thank you for joining us today, and we hope you'll join us again next time on our Road to Walk.